You're listening to She's Got Drive podcast, the podcast that inspires women to be a driver in their own lives for the life and stories of black women with drive. And I'm your host, Shirley McAlpine. I'm a business consultant, an executive coach, and a leadership facilitator, working with people and organizations live their lives by design and not default. Welcome back to another episode of She's Got Drive. Welcome back. I record this and my heart is heavy. It's been a week, man. I, it's been a week. <laughs> I'm, I'm reposting an episode, which is, I think, one of my first interviews that I posted, Jenny Joseph, one of my sheroes, really, because it's Black Maternal Health Week um, that happens every year. And Jenny has tirelessly worked to save black and brown mothers and black and brown babies for her entire career as a midwife and as an activist and as an advocate and campaigner for change, a change agent in an environment that refuses, and I'm saying refuses, to do what it needs to do to transform the experience of black mothers and black babies in the United States and in the UK. Um, And if you don't know, black women are three times more likely, three times more likely to die as a result of giving birth in the US than than white mothers. And white mothers are not faring well in the US either for a country which spends the most money in the world on maternal health. (laughs) Some stats. In 2019, in New York area, I think it's up to nine times more likely at one point. And the rate fell a bit. It increased for black women. So I'm posting this because it's one of the the best interviews as she shares her work. She shares the issues that are at hand that has not changed. And so I'm resharing, reposting Jenny Joseph. And I've reposted her before because it's such a good interview. And I know there's new people who who start listening to the podcast. And I'm sharing it this week because in this week, we have seen more killings of black and brown boys by the police. And they're boys. I mean, young men, 20-year-old Dante Wright. And um, we have 13-year-old. I can't even begin to tell you how my heart is really weeping. Like I wake up crying. I do. I I think I'm, it's a combination of fear and um, disturbed, distressed at um, what is happening and wondering what is going to facilitate change. in the police you know what is going to facilitate change in the police so i we struggle in the reproductive phase of our lives as we encounter the health system and then your children survive that to then have to navigate racism from early ages and then you realize as a black mother or a mother of a black child 
or the mother of a brown child that how much you can protect them as limited as your children grow up and go out in the world as they should go out in the world. And so it's pertinent this week and I'm sending all my love to mothers, to grandmothers, to godmothers, to aunties who are praying and sending intention to their children for protection. I know it's heavy this week. It is heavy, but that's where I am and that's what's going on. You know, we keep fighting the fight. We keep doing the work and we will do our part. You know, this is in memory of all the children who have been lost. All the babies. And it doesn't matter how old those children got to. 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, 13 years old. They're always the babies of the mothers. So I give you Jenny Joseph. So let's, shall we start with what, what you understand or success to be, you know, if you think about what it means for you? That's a good one. Well, I think it changes for me what it means. It, it's sort of morphing, sometimes daily even. It, it's, it's fluid. So I would say that I feel in some ways very successful in my particular field, in my genre, women's health, midwifery. And then on the other hand, as a CEO, I feel like I've got so far to go to say I've reached that success. But for me, success is a place where if you ever arrive there, that it's just a complete, it's very um, part of who you are. It's sort of very natural. It feels good. It feels comfortable, like you're where you wanted to be and that you are just completely living in that way. It's a state of being almost. Mm, yeah. Mm. So wh- at what point do you think you arrived at that state of being in your chosen field? Wow. Um, just recently. <laughs> just recently. But over the course of many years, there's been these sort of smaller steps to a level of success. And mm-hmm. so I feel like I've achieved as I've gone along. And then on the other hand, I look back and I say, no, no, not quite yet. And then for the future, I want more. So, you know, I keep moving the bar, so to speak. But I think I could say for sure when I got a license in Florida, for example, that was one major success because I was told, no, you can't. Like, it won't happen. Like, oh, no, no. And so I was very clear about and intentional about, no, I'm going to get a license. So, for example, becoming actually the first foreign trained midwife that got a license in Florida since the Midwifery Act had been closed down, that was a real triumph for me and I think a measure of success. But that was just one piece because in having the license, having the piece of paper and actually being able to utilize it to get to work in the field that I'd chosen, I wasn't actually really able to get to work in the way I wanted to get to work inside of that. Mm. So there wasn't success in that because all of a sudden we're faced with, you have a piece of paper, you're able to be let loose, if you will, but now what are you going to do? Right. Because right. The, the recognition of what that license meant in Florida versus what it meant for me when I was in England was that, oh, this is a different midwife. Okay. okay. So that changed there for me as far as the success of that. It sounds like when you... When you use that example is that you know success you achieve one thing and then there's there's the next level anyway yes um 
that you then create for yourself. Right, and it can also be created for you because it develops out of where you are at that particular moment. Right. So um, some of it was purposeful. I might set a goal or I set out to achieve something and others were just like, this is what has to happen now. Like you've got there, so now you must go to this next thing. Mm -hmm. And if not, if you're not going there, then you kind of would be, I, you know, that sense of just, well, you're stuck. So, you know, the success piece was either part of the next, you know, just naturally, organically mm -hmm. movement forward, or it was, no, I really want to do X, so I'm going to work towards that. Right, right. So then it, how much of your, the work and your accomplishments then have been planned and how much of it has been organic, you know, because yeah. many people have three-year plans, five-year plans and visions for themselves and they're working uh, away mm -hmm. at that. So how much of it has been organic for you? I would say all of it, honestly. I think because I got here, I landed in 89 and I had no clue. I just literally, I was excited to come to the States. I came to be married. I, I met my husband-to-be, you know, the year before, and um, he came to England and proposed, and I was so giddy and excited and thrilled right. to accept, and I came back um, with my three-year-old in tow, and it was the beginning of this new era, and I was very, very excited about all the possibilities, and in that moment in those moments I didn't stop to think about and the career path piece right because I'd been a midwife for 10 years before I arrived and I assumed that Americans had babies and I was like well how else would you have a baby but with a midwife which is normal around the rest of the entire world so I get off a plane I'm like let me find the hospital because I'm gonna get signed up because I'm gonna start my shifts right. and I'm gonna have a job and everything's gonna be lovely and so no it wasn't at all and so the beginning changes had to come organically because there was nothing else for me to do but kind of work my way through it, mm -hmm. figure my way through it, meet the obstacles, and then have the obstacles kind of guide me. Um, and then on the other hand, also, you know, determine that I wasn't going to let these systems and these blocks beat me. So it did sort of organically develop. And, you know, as I began to see the future, I began to lay out plans for myself. I didn't actually know how I was going to get there. Right. But I would make these plans. In fact, recently I found a couple of things where I'd written out these 10-year goals. And actually, I'm not that badly far off. You know, it's really interesting to see something that was quite outrageous that I've written down that I would have done, you know, 10 years ago. Oh, yes. I'm going to do this. And then not have any kind of plan towards it, but then go back and see, you know, like I've got one where I'm about two years away, three years away, 2018 would have been when it was due. And it was quite an ambitious goal. But I had it written down in 2008. And I surprised myself because quite a bit of it has been achieved without any real plan. Right, right. So, you know, there's that part of it where it just unfolds, you know, the next thing and, and now the next thing and then, oh, now the next thing. And then there's the other piece where you drive it somewhat, mm. but not necessarily, uh, for me personally, I don't necessarily have the ability maybe or the way of being where I, you know, lay it out by minuscule and minutiae. You know, I don't put all those details in right. there, but it just happens. So what has you like keep on going and keep on achieving? Well, you achieving? know, I think what has me keep working forward is that I just can't settle. I'm just not that person. Like, I get to a certain point and I'm like, no, no, this is not enough. 
Okay. I need more of this, or it ought to be, or it's not right that there's something there for me at each juncture that has me go, okay, hold on a minute. You know, if only this piece was in place, it would be better, or it would work better for other people, perhaps for the patients, the women, the families. Or this isn't right. We can't have that. Yeah. So what can I do about it?、Right. So those kinds of things come up and somewhat keep driving me forward. But it was extremely difficult because I sort of had to reinvent myself to to manage what I met when I arrived.、Okay. I had to create almost inside of this place where there was nothing. As far as midwifery at the time, it was 1989, and so.、Um, The Midwifery Practice Act in Florida had actually been closed down, so midwives like myself, who are not nurses, were not actually licensed or legal. Nurse midwives who could work in hospitals were were already practicing and had an, a way and access point to practice. So I didn't want to do a nurse midwifery training all over again. I felt very frustrated、mm. and affronted even that that was a suggestion, <laughs> because I'd been a midwife for ten、mm. years. Inside of a hospital environment, even though I was what we consider a non-nurse or a direct entry midwife, meaning、right. that we didn't do the nursing as the first discipline, but went directly into midwifery. So I found that very frustrating when I came, where I had to be told, "Well, you should go to school and do this, or you should go to school and do the other, or you have to start from scratch." Or what are you talking about? So I was met with a lot of、um, consternation. Many people threw their hands up and said, "Oh no, no, no." We don't do that anymore.、Mm. Um, this is old, and you know, referral back to the day,、uh, you know, when the grand midwives were delivering babies at home,、um, you know, and the history of it all began to unfold. So it was extremely difficult, extremely frustrating, and I found it hard to keep fighting at, at that point. I was very overwhelmed. I was depressed for a long time. I ended up compromising and working in a physician's office, an OB physician's office.、Right. I thought that would be as close as I could get to doing the work I loved, but it was interesting because that became the catalyst for me to actually get out and find a way to go back to my roots、mm. and go back to midwifery. The experience in that physician's office was so horrendous. It was such an eye-opening experience because I had no clue that. One, women could be treated that way. Two, that the medical system was so upside down in the United States, and that three, the disparities in the type of care, depending on your race or your socioeconomic status,、mm -hmm. was so apparent. And unfortunately, I got so caught up, I actually became a victim of the same system because when I had something that was going on for me gynecologically, I foolishly thought that I would work with the physician that I was employed by. Right. And that ended up in quite the disaster, and led me down a road to just completely,、um, essentially ending up. I consider myself a victim of some of these, I think, quite predatory behaviors that happen、um, to women who haven't got any power、right. in the United States. So that was the impetus, though, for me to say, "That's it. Off back to midwifery. <laughs> back to find a way." Find a way because、yeah. we can't have this be all that's available. We can't have this be that women are so disenfranchised.、Mm. All women, but particularly poor women, women of color, women who are powerless in the general society that is the United States. So, 
that forced me to look outside of where I had sort of landed myself, where I put myself as if this was all I could have. And I realized, no, you know what? There's got to be a way. Mm. And that came from the history. That came from learning and understanding women who'd gone before me and their struggles. And realizing that those struggles had come full circle, that they were still playing out, that it was a vicious cycle. And mm. there wasn't really much of a way to break in. But yet I was inspired by the fact that how they had broken in when it was their circle, their yes. time. Yeah. Like if they hadn't have done what they did, many women, families, um, communities would have totally been destroyed. Um, you know, it's really um, quite an interesting fact. But if you think about it, African-American midwives from slavery onwards delivered America. Mm. Well, yeah. Immigrant midwives delivered America. Until there was a Until the physicians right. came in and said, hold up a minute, there's right. a way here, right. perhaps for us to have a little bit more power, a little bit more revenue, a little bit more control. And it started encouraging women into the hospitals. Right. And, um, you know, making sure that people understood the midwives were illiterate and they were drunken and they were dirty and they were unkempt and they were unsafe. And the smear campaign was so successful we still feel the repercussions today. Right, because there are only, uh, is it something like 10% of births are out of hospital births yes. in the United yes. States, which is really a small percentage. Yes. The, you know, when you when you talk about the um, your experience of working in that obstetrician's office, and, mm -hmm. um, you know, it speaks to sometimes when we we come off our path, we come, we, we come off our mission, if you like, and our purpose, but we can get back on path, you know. Yes. But it was like a wake-up call for it you was. then, and, it, and yes. it, it, it seems like it acted as a big catalyst for where you are today, you know, yes. that experience. That was the one thing that brought me back to don't give up, don't, don't let go of who you are. Um, my midwifery practice in England wasn't anything like my current midwifery practice. I was a hospital midwife. Mm. I was happy with my shift, loved it. I right. loved to be able to go home when I was done. Yeah. I liked my six weeks of paid vacation. I liked that there was a hierarchy. I liked that there was a collaborative approach to obstetric care. Right. I liked um, having an understanding from the general public that midwifery was what happens around normal birth and maternity yes. care. Yeah, I like the all these way things. that we give birth in the UK, isn't and it? It's in the, the rest of Europe birth. and yeah. pretty well the rest of the world. Right. So I, I was fine with everything as it was. And so I didn't come here looking to be the independent midwife, which I've since become. I didn't come here looking to be an entrepreneur. I wasn't interested in any of that. I didn't come here looking to be the owner of a birthing center or an, or an outreach clinic. I didn't want to do public health. I just wanted to do what I've been doing, yes. which I loved and had been doing since I was 19 years old. So I was 30 when I arrived. And at this juncture, you know, 26 years hence, I am still in shock of how the system is around maternity care. Mm. And it was um, that particular change that set me on this trajectory. There's been a series of things that have me do a hard stop and say, okay, a new direction. And, you know, along the way, those new directions have me set a new version of what I think success might look like. Okay. And also how I might get there. Right. One of the things that is quite shocking and eye-opening is that 
the maternal um, health and illness around pregnancy in the United States has a standing quite low rank, lowly ranked in the world. So recently we were 60th in the um, world ranking for maternal mortality, meaning mothers dying, having babies mm. in the United States. And the part that's really scary about that is that the number is actually worse. So each year it's getting worse mm. rather than improving. Many other countries, and particularly developing nations, where you'd expect that there's an issue around maternal health and maternal death, those numbers are improving. Now, they're markedly larger than mm -hmm. ours, but we are at the stage now where two to three mothers die every day in the United States around pregnancy and birth. Mm. That's one thing. But the other piece, which is a, almost like America's dirty little secret, if you will, is that there's around 40 to 50,000 what they're calling near-miss experiences every year, meaning you almost died. Yeah. You didn't quite. You made it through, but by the skin of your teeth. So let me put that in another way. That means there are women who are leaving the hospital after having a baby, but they're leaving from the ICU. They're leaving from the cardiac care unit. Right. They're not leaving from the postpartum floor because they never made it to the postpartum. They went right. straight from labor to the ICU. There's something very insidious in a system that has that amount of money being spent and has these outcomes. And then the flip side of that, of course, is that the babies, the infants, are also in jeopardy. If a mother is sick, her baby might be lost or also very sick. Right. And the biggest um, situation that we face is the prematurity rate and the low birth weight rate. It's outrageous. And we are around the 40s, 41st, I believe, in the world as far as infant mortality. Right. And unfortunately, two to three times as many of those babies are usually African-American. And in the mother's case, three to four times as many are African-American as compared to white. Yeah. Something going on here. Out of all that you've been working on then, what would you say is your biggest accomplishment today? Because it's a huge undertaking. Well, and it's interesting because I didn't set out to deal with that particular issue in that way. I set out to get myself back up on my feet and be the midwife. That's yeah. really where I started. Like, yes. okay, what do I have to do? And I started a home birth practice initially because that was the quickest route into entrepreneurship, okay. the most affordable route into entrepreneurship. I started small. I had my little one-man band. Here comes midwife Jenny. I'll come to your house. Right. And so I would do home visits. I delivered babies at home. And I had these elite few women who wanted that service. They looked for me. They found me. I didn't even have to advertise. And the word of mouth carried the practice, and it grew. And it was wonderful, but it wasn't diverse enough for me. I was wondering, where are the women of color? Oh. Where are these women who, um, you know, from different groups? And they were not showing up. I was mainly working with women who were quite affluent, who were educated, who were insured, who were supported, who were Caucasian. And there was nothing wrong with that. I loved every minute, but it wasn't really what I was looking to do. So when I took on um, growing that piece of the practice, I said, well, can I bring in other women, more diverse women, and perhaps if they don't want a home birth, maybe they'll have their baby at the hospital as they seemingly wanted to do. And that opened up a whole new way of providing the care. And in doing care that way for those women, women who weren't looking for the home natural birth, they wanted an epidural, or they wanted to go in the hospital and spend mm -hmm. a couple of days. They wanted access to what they were safe, they felt was safe with. I opened up the idea of doing clinic for them, letting them have, not letting, but they, you know, supporting them having a choice of hospital delivery and then coming back postpartum. Right. 
And it worked. I literally diversified the practice. I was obviously willing to take Medicaid and, you know, work out payment plans mm -hmm. and do free care where it was needed. But what happened was as we began to gather the information of the outcomes of the birth data, we saw that these women just happenstance, they were having full-term babies. They were having um, better birth outcomes, you know, getting a vaginal birth versus a C-section. They were breastfeeding. That just happened as a, like a byproduct of saying, well, why don't we just provide this care? Right. Like, let's get over this, oh, it's all about the birth room, or oh, we all have to have a water birth, or oh, let's get some lavender oil, and you know, it was like, never mind all that. What do women want? And women said, we want prenatal care. It's not that we don't want the care, we just can't get into prenatal care. We can't get access to care. We're going through all these hoops and hurdles, trying to work our way around systems that are quite obstructive to that goal. I mean, it's very ironic. The throwing up of the hands, oh, these women, they're so bad, they're so wrong, they don't care. Yet, actually, when you try to access the system, I mean, heaven help you. Good luck. It is so set up in a way that it's, it's quite difficult. And then if you do get in, there's certain other barriers that will pop up very quickly, such as, well, Dr. So-and-so doesn't take that type of insurance, or you've got to go, you know, three bus routes over to get this care at this right. time, or you've got to, you just don't know how long you're going to wait, or, you know, on and on and on. So it began to be apparent that it wasn't necessarily that women were having poor outcomes because of their wanton disregard for themselves or their children. It was more a matter of there's a system here set up a certain way, perhaps on purpose or perhaps to be being sustained at this certain way, that has um, women have such an option, you know, have so few options okay. that they're ending up with these outcomes. I then was able to connect that back to my experience years earlier when I worked for the OB and realized there's a connection here. That system that I was part of, that I ended up with my own issues, as well as I watched as other women had other similar issues inside of that OB practice, began to realize it was bigger than just private physicians, that it was institutionalized. Right. And so again, more research, more investigation, more looking at the history, trying to connect the dots and working out that somehow what we were doing in terms of providing this limited, really, midwifery care for the average woman who wanted just healthy, a healthy outcome for mm -hmm. herself and her baby, what we were doing was impacting the outcomes so, so much, so strongly, that we then began to say, this is a system of care that we've developed, sort of inadvertently, that could be applied by anybody. And that's that's the JJ way. That's right. I and came up defining yes. the JJ way, and I, so you've mm -hmm. been able to um, use that model here yes. in yes. Florida, mm -hmm. and um, and and that has saved babies, that has saved mothers. It, it's hard to be able to gauge it, but absolutely, um, when you have a comparative statistic that says the you know the county that we work in or the even the state that we're working in we compare the the statistics for women of the same demographic mm. we're talking about some outrageous numbers we're talking about 18 or 20 percent of um, likelihood of having a premature infant if you're a certain race or a certain demographic 
And so we compared our study, because we ran a study in 2006, 2007, of 100 of the women that were enrolled in this outreach clinic that we were doing. And we just enrolled them prospectively. We made sure that we just literally asked if they would be willing to participate. Right. We signed them up as they became in, came in as a new patient and waited to see what happened after the delivery. And we were somewhat blown away because of that cohort of women, um, of the African-American and Hispanic women in that group, we came back with a zero, not one premature, not one low birth weight baby out of the whole lot. Right. And then we looked, well, let's look at the statistics for this year with the same demographic of women. So we looked at the African-American women, and they, it was 19.2%, I believe, that year for prematurity. In Florida? In Florida. Okay. Zero. So it wasn't like, oh, look how wonderful, we've dropped it down to 15. Oh, we maybe, look, we've got to 13, how amazing. Gone. These were women who were not looking for midwifery, who were not coming with the best of nutrition and the best of, you know, options and were high on the socioeconomic scale. These were everyday women who were like, I can't get in over here. Dr. So-and-so threw me out. I don't have any money. I'm undocumented. I just arrived. Whatever was their story, they were those women who would typically populate these statistics. Right. And you were able to turn that around. And that so was just applying the model. You know, given that, that's a huge, um, I mean, that's a huge accomplishment. You've been in practice now for... I'm in my 30, 36th year. Okay. You, how many babies have you delivered? Well, see, I stopped counting. <laughs> <laughs> a lot. Thousands. thousands. I don't know. A long time. Thousands of babies. A lot of babies. Those babies are about to deliver the... Oh, yes. Babies, oh, yes. So. I'm a grandma midwife, yes. Thousands of babies. So mm -hmm. if, if, what would you say is your biggest accomplishment? I'm going to say that it was that, that we came up with a system that was tight enough and was that you could replicate, that you could duplicate, that anyone could apply it. You didn't have to be a certain type of provider. Mm -hmm. It's basically a patient-centered model, a family-centered model, a woman-centered model. Okay. It involves just being, having some humility, having some compassion, having some human kindness, little t things to tweak that didn't cost any money at all, right? There's no money in that way of being. Okay. But applying that consistently across the board and engaging the staff to join in with me. So as we've grown and we've had a, we now have eight on our staff, right? But the one criteria to work here is that you have to join in. You have to be willing to embrace the culture that we create. And the culture is simply this, you're gonna have a full-term healthy baby. Like that's not an option. Like that's what's gonna happen. Yes. So the staff joining in became the system because the system isn't anything fancy or deep or you know arduous it's simply this will you stand with us will you hold this space for this and do you have fun while you're doing it because if you do you're in and we can work together and that has turned this thing into this system mm. but what was really great was that the women were the recipients of this they were thrilled. Most of them cried. Most of them were overwhelmed. They couldn't believe. They were incredulous. They told their friends. They ran into the streets mm -hmm. and said, come back. Come here. So we know this will happen for you, too. And so inside of that as an accomplishment, if you will, I would say that was probably the top, that it happened. And it continues to happen. Like, mm. it's consistent. And that we can say, this is how you do it. So what is it about you that's managed to lead in this way that's managed to develop 
to get where you are? I don't know if it's about me. And I think there are others, and there's a uniqueness of this configuration of these pieces. Mm. But I think across this nation, there are many that have configured their own way of that. Okay. I think midwifery itself lends itself to be in a very um, patient-centered, woman-centered approach. Um, there's listening, and there's respect, and there's time, and there's, you know, this care. So I don't know that it's me specifically because I don't own the midwifery model of care. Okay. You know, and I like to think I'm like this consummate midwife that okay. since I was breathing, I knew and, you know, I've been waiting my whole life. Yeah. And, you know what I mean? I've never done anything else and I don't want to ever. Like that's going to always be the foundation of anything I do yeah. is that way of being. So I'm not really sure how to answer that. But I think that... Um, like, I've never had any other doubt or feeling that that's how I could and should operate. Like, okay. that, as I grew into adulthood, it was there, and it stayed with me. Like, I won't stand for silly nonsense, and I won't stand for wrong, and I won't stand for unfairness, and I won't stand for cruelty. Like, these certain things. And I've, I met that, I felt, in what was going on in the maternity care, in the women's health care. I met that here. So I had to go against that. Like, it wasn't an option to, well, oh, so now look what I've learned, but never mind. Let me go and maybe I'll try some secretarial work. That's, that wasn't going to happen. So what would you say is the source of your success then? When I see something that I maybe with effort and energy could fix or change, then I'm driven. So right now I think what, what's going on for me is that I'm looking at I want a successful nonprofit organization mm -hmm. and I want to expand this work and the opportunity for others to do this work in their town, city, their neighborhoods, where however they want to do it. So now I'm looking at, well, that comes from wanting this to happen. So my success, the goal that I have is to get a national program um, up, running and sustained. I do have an element of me where I'm just go, just go. Like, I'm in action. Mm. That's part of who I am, I think. And, and so, as long as you're in action. I'm good. I feel like you're being pulled. Yes, I agree. I pulled feel that too. into like this future. Mm -hmm. So what do you say to someone who has that pull? You know, but we can get in our own way. Mm -hmm. What do you say to that person? Pace yourself and have have a sense of self-care along the way. I've been very much so pulled and so passionate that I've abandoned that side. Mm -hmm. And it's not sustainable. That piece I'm clear about now, that the self-care and pacing so that you can achieve and answer that call and be in that passion, those two things go together. And I don't think I saw that as clearly as I do now all these years ago. Mm -hmm. In fact, I think they were totally separate in my mind, that they, one thing had to do with the other. Like, never even came to my, you know, consciousness that that is an integral piece to being able to answer the call. Yeah. What advice would you give to your younger self? You know, if she was, if Jenny, mm -hmm. um, the 25-year-old or something, was sitting in front of you, what would you tell her? Honestly... Truthfully, I would say, slow it down. Stay present. I miss so much. 
I went so fast. I missed so much. Yeah. Slow it down. So Stay in the moment. You've got some sadness, it looks like, around missing that. Yeah. yeah. Because you can't get it back. And you don't have, you, you know, it's, nothing's promised. So you could just literally, and, you know, we all have that where you blink your eye and you're like, I can't believe so-and-so's grown or I can't believe, you know, these things have happened. And it was so fast. So fast. You know, I'm going to be 57. And I'm like, well, how did that happen? <laughs> like, huh? <laughs> so slow it, slow it down. Right. Just be in the moment. And that also that the, the success, if you will, can be redefined. It's okay. Like, it doesn't have to be what you thought it was going to be or it doesn't have to look like. It's yours to just redefine. Yes, yeah. Yeah, that's so great. It's, you're not set. It's not... Yes. Well, which kind of speaks to your, the whole thing. You, you're great at not being wedded to one idea, right? Yes. So you can totally reinvent yourself. You can totally yes. reinvent your goal. Yes. And if that one doesn't... Yeah. Yeah. You can totally do that inside of your perps. Like, let's go here, let's go there. Yes. Like, you don't have to be stuck. I hope that you've been inspired to shift gears in your own life. I listen to Jenny because she always inspires me. And in fact, I'll have her back on the show to do another interview for 2021 and to see the progress that she's made in terms of the work, the range of work that she's doing and how she's building out that work to meet this, this need. You know, so listening to her inspires me to keep moving forward, to keep fighting. And I, I invite you to do the same, you know, so... I'll keep bringing these amazing women to you because it inspires me as well, you know. And I thank you for being a listener. If you are getting anything from She's Got Drive, then I ask you to do two things for me. The first thing is to share the show. Think of one person, two people in your contacts right now who you think they will love She's Got Drive and share the show with them today and say, listen to this. And then the second is if you could go onto iTunes and rate and review the show, I would appreciate that so very much. Uh, let me tell you the third thing, actually. The third thing is um, don't forget to enter to, I'm still giving away gratitude journals, so don't forget to enter the gratitude journal giveaway. So just put your email address in to enter and then I will, and I will, um, I'll be sending them out at the end of the month. Okay. She's Got Drive is produced by Cassandra Voltalina. The music is by the awesome or female band Blonde. The song is called Circles. Until next time, go well and stay well.